The Old Testament reading for the 13th Sunday after Trinity is from 2 Chronicles chapter 28, beginning at the 8th verse. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. But the prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Odeh. And he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that is reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem male and female as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me, and send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Certain chiefs also of the men of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Johanan, Barakiah the son of Meshillamoth, Hezekiah the son of Shalom, and Amasa the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who were coming from the war and said to them, You shall not bring the captives in here, for you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt. For, for our guilt is already great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoils for the princes and all the assembly. The men who have been mentioned by name rose and took the captives, and with the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them. And carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of Palms. Then they returned to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You are the God who works, wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. The epistle is from Galatians chapter 3, beginning at the 15th verse. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. 
The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. The Holy Gospel is written in the 10th chapter of St. Luke, beginning at the 23rd verse. Praise to Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put to Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He asked him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, perchance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he saw, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn. And took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I return. Which of these three do you think proved a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed mercy upon him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You two immortalized this uh, event in their song and their album, War. It was the song, Sunday, Bloody Sunday. But for Malachi Cole, a 16-year-old schoolboy at the time, and 30th of January, 1972, he saw it from a very different perspective. The Catholics went out marching in what was called then the Derry Free State because Derry had rebelled against the Northern Irish and the British. And somebody had grabbed him just as the Paris started shooting. 
the British paratroopers started shooting. He was, caught, he was drug into a courtyard and had a slotted wooded fence through which he could watch what was happening. And he said, I was scared stiff. He said, I saw it as, as Ray fell. Mr. Ray fell to the pavement. He kept crying out. He said, I, couldn't move, I can't move my legs. The bald man who had pulled coils to safety told the man out in the street, stay calm, keep calm. Coyle said, don't move, pretend you're dead. And then more shots rang out from the north end of the courtyard, and the pavement around Ray exploded in sparks. Ray was still trying to raise himself. From the house he was in, a quartermaster sergeant from the Irish Army, who had been over there visiting some, some family members in Derry that day, watched in horror as the man's brown corduroy jacket jumped up four or five inches in the air and his head then slowly began to go down to the pavement. He had been shot in the back a second time. The first bullet, which had caused him to fall, had damaged his spine. That's why he couldn't move, but it was the second bullet that killed him. And he didn't die quickly. He just bled out. Slowly. And no one could help. A man near, near, nearby was also on the pavement, wounded John Mahone watched with terror as he got hit and he heard his cries for help and then he heard the steps of the Paris approaching and so he laid down and pretended he too was dead. And in today's gospel lesson we also see a similar sight picture of a dead man lying on a road or side of a road what seems to be a dead man, or maybe he's dying, but he seems to be dead. Yeah, because a certain man went down from Jericho to Jerusalem and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing and left him half dead. And half dead means that he's at the point of death. Can't really tell whether he's a corpse or not. And Jesus began to tell this story in answer of a question. The question is, who is my neighbor? It's a good question. Because the question, who is my neighbor, really is the question of who am I obligated to help in this life and who can I safely not entangle my life with? Right? Because Deuteronomy 6.5, which the lawyer just had quoted, says, the Lord your God... You are to love with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength. And then Leviticus 19.18, which the lawyer also quoted, says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if Scripture so, so clearly defines this issue... Why then does Jesus' questioner, a lawyer, an expert of the scriptures, ask, who is my neighbor? Well, we're told it's to justify himself. Do we try to justify ourselves? I know I do. Often to regret later. Because you see, God calls us, or rather commands us, commands us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So if, if a guy ain't my neighbor, then I don't have to love him. That's for certain sure, right? Which brings us back to that unconscious wounded body lying on the side of the road at the point of death, right? 
What do we really know about him? We can't speak. He's got no clothing to identify which team he's on. Right? I mean, and, 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 and the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan, none of them saw what happened. So how do, they, how do they know he's not a perpetrator? He's not a criminal that got the bad end of it. We don't. We don't know any of these things. And Jesus never tells us this guy's name. He remains anonymous. But the implication in this parable is that, is that he is an ethnic Hebrew, which means that the first two guys that pass by on the road, right, and don't stop and don't help, the priest and the Levite are, 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 are ethnic kinsmen to this man. And they are, they, they are two guys that are obligated to help him. But they choose not to. Right? You know, I mean, think about our own lives. How many times have, have we known that a fellow Lutheran, a fellow parish member, a, a fellow community person whom we, were, we know is in trouble or, or, or in need or hurting or in pain or something going on in their lives, and we just choose to just not get involved? Not to complicate our lives. We just do nothing. As the great Irish statesman Edmund Burke said, all that is necessary for evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing. Just do nothing. Just concentrate on the, on the fall football and just do nothing. Right? Just do nothing. That's all the devil wants us to do. Do nothing. And you know, I even wonder, you know, I was, you know, and I even wonder if, if those who do nothing when evil is clearly occurring can even themselves be classified as good. When we do nothing, are we even good ourselves? And I, and I, and I think maybe we're not. Because is it, not, is it not true that there are two sides to every story, every issue, one that is good and one that is evil or bad? One that respects the truth and one which does not. I mean, how can we meet evil halfway? And the interchange between, between food and poison can, can only, is it not death that is the only entity that, 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 that profits? How can the thinker and the, meet the fool halfway? And so in any compromise between good and evil, it is only evil that can profit. As the thinker Ayn Rand once said, and I, I agree with her, I think. I mean, perhaps, so, you know, so going back to our lesson today, I mean, maybe, maybe the priest and the Levite, you know, viewed themselves as doing the practical, the, the, the reasonable thing. I mean, why, why jump to conclusions? Like I said, he's naked, he's unconscious, he can't speak. So we don't even, did, did they really even know he's Hebrew and they're obligated to help him? And he might be a perpetrator. He might be a criminal. They got the bad end of it. Which is what we see transpiring here, perhaps, right? The priest comes down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, he came and looked. At least he looked better. You know, that he kind of examined the, the situation a little bit more. And then he passes by on the other side. Now, both have the ability to intervene. It's, it's assumed that all three 
not just the Samaritan, but the priest and the Levite are riding. Because in the ancient Middle East, even today in the Middle East, no one but the very poor walk anywhere, especially through the desert. Okay, if, if, you're, uh, if you're upper class, which is what the priest was, or solidly middle class, which is what the Levite was, you were riding on an animal through the desert for 17 miles from Jerusalem down to Jericho. You weren't walking. Only the poor walk. So the parable assumes equal potential for service. Everyone, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, all are mounted. They all have the ability to intervene. They all have the ability to help. But the priest and the Levite... Right? I mean, they don't. Now, the term half-dead means literally the guy is next to death. That's what the rabbis understood this term to mean in the first century. It, the next stage after this is one just expiring, the one actually, like the point of death. But half-dead means that they're, they're very close to that point of expiring, that they're unconscious and appear, appear very much dead. Yet what is to be done, Right? Like I said, the wounded man can't speak. He's naked. He appears dead. And as I said earlier, as the, since the priest didn't see the attack, the Levi didn't see the attack, who's to say? And, and we have to understand, we, have to, we, we, we can't too harshly judge the priest and the Levi. I think we make a mistake when we do, Right? Because, because when we judge the priest and the Levite too harshly, we're, we're really saying that we, we would have done the right thing. And would we have? See, we're all creatures of the environment in which we live. We're all, we're all, we're all citizens of our time. And, and back in that time, in the, in the first century, the priests and the Levites didn't just read the Bible, but they also read things like the, the, the Old Testament Apocrypha. They, they read the writings of different rabbis like Ben Sharak, who says in chapter 12, 1 to 7, that you are to give help to an upright man, but never to a sinner, right? You don't help sinners. You're to do good to a humble man, but give nothing to the godless man. You are not to help the sinner. He might be a sinner. And the, and the religious view at the time, the, you know, the, the theology that was popular at this time, especially among the ruling classes of, of the Hebrews, was that to help offered to a sinner, especially one whom God has struck down, is actually opposing God himself. And I'm a good priest. I don't want to oppose God. But do you want to oppose God? see, we're all conditioned to think certain things, aren't we? To view certain things a certain way. Sure, Scripture contradicts those things, but we don't really spend that much time in the Scriptures, do we? We don't. We, we, are, we are conditioned by, the, by what people say around us and how people act around us and, and about what's told to us by who, who even knows who they are. Right? I mean, think about us, how we are so conditioned by social media and Google and Twitter and Pinterest and Instagram and, and Facebook to, to think certain things, to view certain things as important, certain fashions as, as, as better than other fashions, and, and certain ideas more important than other ideas. And how often do we take the time to really examine what's being told us is actually the truth? I would submit that we do not. We do not. 
So let us not so hastily condemn this priest and Levite. We might be condemning ourselves, right? We should defend the priest and speak well of him, put the best construction on everything. Yet the Samaritan, he, he resists the conditioning of his times. He, he ignores the prejudice of his times. And don't kid yourself, there was prejudice back then, real prejudice. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. And I, you know, I, I mean hated each other. The Samaritans were viewed as half-breeds who worshipped on, on a false mountain up in Mount Gerizim in what used to be the, the, northern, the northern kingdom of Israel. And they were considered by the Jews to be utterly un, 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 unmitigatedly irredeemable. In the liturgy in the, in the synagogues, the Hebrews at that time would pray for the death and the annihilation of the Samaritans. Samaritans were evil. To do evil to a Samaritan, to do bad to a Samaritan was considered by many to do good to God. And yet the Samaritan, he doesn't do that. He doesn't play this game. He doesn't pay this Hebrew man on the side of the road back with his own coin. He sees him as an individual created in God's image, and he helps the man regardless of his ethnicity, regardless of his, 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 his political or theological affiliation. He doesn't care because he knows that God calls us to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us and to, and to bless them and not curse them and pray for those who mistreat us, as Jesus says in Luke 6. And so, like, as God instructs us in Romans 12, 14, we are to bless those who persecute us and bless and do good and not curse. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessings, as Peter says in his first epistle. And that is what the Samaritan here does. It's what he does. It's what Christ is calling us to do. And so we see these ideals unfold like a rose unfolding from a bud in the Good Samaritan's actions. He goes to him and he applies to him first aid, pours, bind, bandages up his wounds, pours oil and wine upon the, upon the bindings. He sets him on his own animal, brings him to a, an inn, and then takes care of him. And the next day when he has to depart, he gives two denarii to the, to the innkeeper and says, take care of him. And whatever you spend in addition, when I return, I will repay you. Now the Good Samaritan, I believe, is a template for how we are to treat each other. He is. And yet he's much more than that, I believe. Theologically speaking, I believe that the Samaritan embodies Jesus himself. For Jesus was a Samaritan more than a, than a, than a true Hebrew. For in his own lineage, there are, there are Canaanites and there are, there are non-Jews. So he's, he's, a, he's a hybrid. He's a mongrel in ethnicity from the, from the pure-blooded Hebrew, the pure-blooded Jew. Right? And he, he too comes to us, even though we, through our own words and actions and deeds, show him that we hate him. And, and yet he comes to us when we're wounded in our sins and our iniquities, when we're dying, when we're half dead in this world. He comes to us because we are conceived in sin and born, and the wages of sin is death. And yet he comes to us and he saves us. He binds up our wounds. He pours on the, the, the oil of that, 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 is, that is, represents the Holy Spirit that is given to us in holy baptism. And then he, he gives us the, the wine of his own blood to drink and taste our forgiveness. And then he takes care of us with his real presence. 
And then he puts us upon his own beast, the church, and carries us to the inn. And then places us in the care of other Christians, the clergy and other believers, to take care of us, to catechize us and teach us till he returns. Till he returns. Now why does Jesus, the Good Samaritan, do this? Does he do this because we are his friend? No. Does he do this because we deserve it? No. No. He does this because he cannot stand by in the bloody Sunday that is this world and watch us just bleed out in the street without intervening. In Jesus' name, amen.